We have been working through Matthew's gospel, and we are in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Last week we looked at the fact that the religious leaders had conspired together to kill him. And he's on his way to the cross now. But then this this very touching event takes place. Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman, okay, now we we know from, from John's gospel that this is Mary of Mary and Martha fame. All right, so this is Mary, and her sister Martha is there, and Lazarus is there, okay? So a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. John's Gospel again tells us, worth a year's wages. All right, so this is very expensive. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, 2,000 years later, you may read that and go, well, that was rude. Um, No, that was the custom back then. When you were invited over to somebody's house, typically they'd greet you with a kiss. The servants would wash your feet because you were walking around in the dirt. And they would pour oil or perfume on your head. It was kind of like a deodorant, really. Um, So this was not an insult. This was a beautiful thing. But what did the disciples think? And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, this is Mary of Mary and Martha. Remember, right before Christmas, we looked at that text where Jesus goes to Mary and Martha's home. And there's a pattern we see. Remember, um, Mary chooses to worship Jesus by quietly sitting at his feet and listening. Martha blows a gasket. She comes in and says, how come you're not helping in the kitchen? And she even yells at Jesus, don't you care that my sister is just sitting here, lazy, good for nothing, and I'm in here in the kitchen and cooking, and Jesus rebukes her. So, so look at the pattern. Mary worships, chooses to worship in a certain way. She gets criticized for it, and Jesus defends her. What do we see here? Mary chooses to worship Jesus in a certain way. She gets criticized for it, not by Martha, but by the disciples. But Jesus defends her. I think the scriptures want us to lift up Mary as an example of worship. 
she worships. Even believers criticize her, yet Jesus defends her. Right? Now, um, that's not the outline. <laughs> you thought we were going there, three-pointer. I've got a three-pointer, though. We're going to look at it from a little different angle. There's some other things going on here. First of all, I want you to see the priority. Jesus, Jesus says, um, you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. He's, he's making a point there, kind of a shocking point, but we're going to look at the priority. Right? Then secondly, uh, the price. This was very expensive. We're going to take a look at the price. And then thirdly, he says, She's preparing him for burial. There's a picture going on here. So let's take a look at the priority, the price, and the picture. First of all, the priority. John's gospel tells us that this perfume was worth a year's wages. Did a little Google search. What do you think the uh, average median income for a family of four in Illinois is? What do you think? 44000 No. 80000 in Illinois. 80000 Now, we, we live in a little ritzy area here. I'd say it's probably more like 100000 Okay? Some of you are going, whoa, thanks for discouraging me. Right. Um. But if this was, were to take place today, you could say Mary took a flask of perfume worth 100 thou, and in one act of worship, pours it out on Jesus. And she gets criticized. Could have been sold and given to the poor. There's poor people who need this. And Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. I mean, that's, it's almost shocking what he says. I mean, is he throwing the poor under the bus? Don't, don't care about poor people? No. I mean, from the rest of Scripture, we know that we are to be concerned with the poor. Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Um, it's not if you give, but when you give to the needy. Right? In uh, Luke twelve thirty three, sell your possessions, give to the needy. He tells the rich young ruler, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. So scripture uh, doesn't say Ignore the poor. We're to care about the poor. We're to be concerned about the poor. So, so what's going on here? Well, given the choice between the two options in this text, option A, give $100,000 to help the poor. Option B, use that same money, that same perfume, to shine a spotlight on Christ's death, Jesus says it's a no-brainer. Go with option B. Why? Money spent on helping the poor can help them 
temporarily. Money spent on upholding the death and resurrection of Jesus helps them eternally. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, yes, help the poor. But given the choice, she has made the right choice, upholding his death and resurrection. That's what he's doing. She chose the right priority, the cross. You know, throughout church history, the question always gets raised, what really is the mission of the church? What are we supposed to be doing? Jesus made it very clear. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Make disciples. The goal is to turn unbelievers into believers, followers of Jesus. The ultimate goal is to make disciples. Now somebody says, but will they even listen to you, to you if they're starving? Shouldn't you feed them? Yes, you should feed them. Okay, But here's what happens. We lose our way very quickly. We get so excited about feeding them and giving them water and and uh, doing the social action, that it's easy to make that the priority and forget the cross. So we help them temporarily while they die and go to hell. You know, this happened with the, uh, the fundamentalist liberal debate. The liberals forgot the cross and they said, our mission is uh, to feed the poor in the name of Jesus but they didn't preach the gospel. Then the fundamentalists overreacted and said, we're just going to preach the gospel and not feed the poor. Well, there's, there's a healthy mix here, but the ultimate goal is to make sure they don't go to hell. You know, today you hear that same thing. We're about, we're about deeds, not creeds. In other words, let's feed the poor, let's reach out and have programs for people and theology just gets in the way. Wait a minute. You better have some theology. If you don't proclaim the cross, they will go to hell. You know, another phrase that keeps popping up, um, and it's attributed to Francis of Assisi, but he never really said it. Preach the gospel wherever you go, and if necessary, use words. In other words, go around doing good, and if... If you need to, use words. And I would say that's ridiculous. How can, how can you preach the gospel without words? Right? Without words, they go to hell. Let me say this. I believe abortion is the killing of a human being. I believe this country is under the wrath of God. Because we defend that practice of keeping it legal to kill your baby. It's horrendous. But some church's message has become, some church's message has become the anti-abortion message. And that message, when it replaces the gospel message, it might save babies, but it lets people go to hell. Our message is the cross, that Christ died for sinners. And you need to repent of your sin and turn to Christ and trust in Him 
And He in His love and grace will save you for all of eternity. Let's not lose sight. So I believe that as we read this passage, what is Jesus saying? This shocking statement, the poor you'll always have, but you won't always have me? Yeah, there's a place to take care of the poor. But the main issue is what I'm about to do on the cross. Her anointing me with oil is pointing to the cross, pointing to my my death and resurrection. Make that the priority, church. And everything else falls into place. All right, so we see the priority. Let's take a look at the price. Again, a year's wages today. You know, call it 80, call it 100 thou. This costly devotion is rebuked by the disciples, but praised by Jesus. Now, I want to be careful here not to do what a lot of pastors do. They turn this into a tithing sermon, right? If she could give a year's wages, the least we can do is tithe. Boy, that would preach, wouldn't it? That'd be good. Well, I think there's a difference between tithing and what this text is doing. Tithing is an act of disciplined, regular, consistent worship. Okay? It's it's an act of discipline. This was an act of of extravagant worship. The difference between the two. I don't want to turn this text into a text to guilt manipulate anyone into giving a year's wages or pouring a bottle of Chanel 5 on me. Please don't do that. This is simply... One example of many examples in the Bible of extravagant worship that points to Jesus. We're supposed to read this and go, he must be awesome. What would compel a woman in one act of devotion to spend $100,000? I think it's meant to stir up Worship for Jesus. Let me me point out a a handful of other examples similar to this. You know, in Luke chapter 7, we read about a very similar event, but it's not Mary. It's a different woman. Uh, It takes place. It's interesting because Mary and Martha are in the home in in, uh, Matthew 26, in the home of Simon the leper. This event takes place in the home of a Pharisee by the name of Simon, and it involves a woman pouring perfume on Jesus. Two different stories, but very similar. So Jesus is in the house of Simon uh, the Pharisee, and behold, a woman of the city, we know what that means, who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house brought in an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet 
and anointed them with the ointment. Okay, now remember when Mary poured the ointment on, the disciples criticized her. What's going on here? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. He's sitting there, he's saying, This is my dinner party, and this embarrassing woman comes in. She's acting in a socially inappropriate way. If he was a true prophet, he would know that she's a prostitute. I mean, this is just, this is ruining my dignified dinner with Jesus. And Jesus reads his mind, and he says, let me ask you a question. Uh, Let's say there's a guy, and two people owe him money. One guy owes him a billion dollars, and one guy owes him five dollars. And he forgives both their debts. Who will love him more? And the Pharisee thinks about it and goes, the guy was forgiven more. And Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, the reason you don't understand, Simon, you legalistic Pharisee you, you think you're fine before God. You're pretty, pretty proud of your religious little lifestyle, aren't you? And you don't need God's forgiveness. This woman knows sin. And she has been forgiven a billion dollars worth of sin. So she loves much. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't pour oil on my head. But she's done these things. What she's done is beautiful. It's an act of extravagant worship. And Jesus receives it, even though it's socially inappropriate, embarrassing, it's undignified. Jesus receives it. Let me give you another example. King David has recaptured the Ark of the Covenant, and he's going to bring it into Jerusalem. And he's got a parade. The worship team is out front, and they're playing, and he's got uh, the, the priests bringing the Uh, the Ark of the Covenant in, and it says this. And David danced before the Lord. And and was it a little conservative Hebrew dance? No. He danced with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Um, What is that? It's the, the priestly garment. It was... Uh, It wasn't his full set of kingly robes. It was just a piece of cloth uh, on his front, on the front and on the back. Kind of a sleeveless, a a wife beater t-shirt maybe. Right? Where do you hear that? (laughs) You don't get that very often, do you? So he's dancing and praising God. And he comes home to Sweetie Pie, Michael, his wife. But Michael, now now remember, Saul was the first king and he was evil. And uh, David won the hand of his daughter, Michael. But she's a little bitter, not too happy that dad got killed and David is the king. 
But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So he has this act of worship, and she criticizes him. You're a vulgar person. What does David say? And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord. It wasn't before you. It wasn't before the crowd. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father. A little dig there, huh? And above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make Mary before the Lord. Another example of extravagant worship. It's criticized. He says, I don't care what you think. I danced before the Lord. You know, um, I do think there's a place to correct your family members when they're out of line. Okay? You know, I know the, uh, uh, the whole promise keepers movement for men was trying to say, hey, men, quit being cavemen. Honey, get me a beer. You know, love her, cherish her, treat her with respect. Okay, So that was to correct the cavemen out there. I think there's another kind of man, though, that just does whatever honey says, doesn't want to make any waves. And you know what? There's a time to say, listen, This is what God wants us to do. This is what God has called me to do. I'm right. You're wrong. You know, Jesus was kind to women, but he did tell Martha, 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 you're wrong. Mary's right. Okay? So, uh, here we see David in an extravagant act of worship, criticized by his own wife. He says, you're out of line text goes on to say she never had a baby. I don't know what you want to read into that, but you think about that. Okay. Back in my day, I got saved in 1982, and they had these things called records. <laughs> and uh, you put them on a turntable and you would listen to them. Some students, when they got saved, they would look at their record collection full of godless lyrics and burn them. Now, I'm not, I'm not calling you to burn all your albums. I'm, I'm just saying, sometimes God calls us in one act of devotion to do something socially unacceptable. Even, you know, even the rest of the Christians would go, you sure want, you want to burn that Led Zeppelin album? I mean, I don't. Let me give you another one. The tax collector named Zacchaeus, who'd been ripping people off his entire life, and Jesus is walking down the street, and he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree, and he goes, hey, 
I'm doing lunch at your house today. And I always use that as a proof text that when you take the pastor out for lunch, you pay. No. Um, so Jesus is with him uh, at, at lunch. And um, at some point, he believes in Jesus. And here's what it says. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Half of my riches going right to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So if I've ripped anybody off, which I'm sure he had, he's going to pay them back fourfold. I mean, he just, he just went bankrupt right here. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Doesn't rebuke him. Does, he just says, obviously, you're a saved man. Because when you're saved, your view of money changes. It's no longer your God. This is what we see here. He's repenting of his God money. Okay, Extravagant act of worship. Now, again, I don't want to turn these texts or our text with Mary into a guilt manipulation, into tithing, into you giving a year's wages, into you smashing perfume or records or whatever, okay? But let me ask you this. Have you ever participated in an act of extravagant worship for the Lord? I'm not saying, read this, now you better do it, but I am asking does this at all represent anything in your heart? Have you ever done anything crazy for the Lord? Well, I might get criticized. Yes, that's all part of the deal. Of course you'll get criticized. Maybe by your own spouse. Maybe by others in the church. I'm just asking, have you ever been so filled with love for Jesus that you, you do an act of extravagant worship that makes no sense to anybody else? And the only one to defend you is Jesus himself. Some of you are going, gee, I don't know what that would be. Let me suggest one. It's called baptism where you stand in front of a group of people and your family thinks you're nuts and your friends at work think you're nuts and you don't look good wet. But you go, I don't care what anybody thinks. He tells me to get baptized. I'm going to get baptized. Or is that too, too on edge? Okay, that's why I, I think he calls us to do an extravagant act of worship the day we believe. Why? Because he's the Lord. He's the one who sets your agenda, not you. Okay, you know uh, there are times when um, I just have people come up out of the blue, excuse me, and they go, I need to get baptized. I'm ready. I'm ready. And I'm like, well, we haven't, we haven't scheduled one. We don't. Uh, the water's going to be cold. We, you know. No, I'm ready. Let's do this. And then there are other times when you have to announce it and remind people. And um, I love it, though, when people come up and go, 
I'm ready. Let's do this thing. Okay. Again, I am not trying to guilt manipulate anybody. I am just looking at these examples and we're supposed to go, wow, their God must be awesome. Do people look at you and go, wow, they're crazy, but their God must be awesome. Okay. Let's look at one more thing, the picture. What's the picture? Well, Jesus says, and and I don't know that Mary even knew what she was doing along these lines, but he says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Before the Jews would place a body in the tomb, they would wrap it in linen and anoint it with oil. In fact, when Jesus' body is taken down from the cross, it says Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. So there's the, uh, the lotions. About 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Jesus is saying there's a symbolic picture going on here. What she is doing is not only an extravagant act of worship, but it's symbolic. It is pointing to my death, which is the most important thing in the world. Isn't this interesting? He says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Part of the telling of the gospel story, he says, for the rest of eternity will be this act of devotion that Mary does. Why? Well, in essence, Jesus is is saying this. I am praising her because she has done something that points to the cross. I am calling attention to her because she is calling attention to the cross. I think Jesus is saying this. Christians, the Christian church, will have a tendency to drift away from the cross. And she brings us back to the cross. Never forget the cross. I uh, found a little blog site by a worship leader, Bob Coughlin. You know who Bob Coughlin is, Todd? Yeah, Good guy? Okay. (laughs) I hope so, because I'm going to quote him. (laughs) Todd goes, that guy's a heretic. I'm like, next illustration. Um, Had a little, uh, little article called, Are We Forgetting the Cross? So he's answering an email from a guy named Phil. Phil writes, I recently looked at the lyrics to songs on a worship song compilation CD. There were 33 songs on the CD. Of these, only nine mentioned the cross at all, and only five mentioned what the cross actually did, i.e. achieve forgiveness of sins. Is the trend among contemporary songs to omit the cross or to mention it briefly in passing, maybe only one line, a sort of tip of the hat to the cross? Is this healthy? And he writes, no, that trend is not healthy. I'm actually pleasantly surprised that nine of the 33 songs mention the cross. I've reviewed CDs that only make mention of the cross, including words like Savior or Redeemer, in one or two songs. Some have no references at all. 
from what I've seen, songs that actually expound Christ's substitutionary sacrifice at the cross have always been lacking in the contemporary genre. However, the same can be said for other periods of writing that focus more on a social gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, or some other doctrinal emphasis. In other words, all you're seeing here is the, 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 the drift that occurs throughout church history of let's focus on something other than the cross. Why? Well, Paul said it very well in 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness, as some translations say, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's he saying? The cross doesn't sell. It doesn't draw the masses. So, you want to draw the masses? Hide the cross. You want to save the elect? Preach the cross. Some churches are big because they're really good at hiding the cross. Not all. But they find juicy, ear-tickling things that draw people. They build their church around that. And then there's a certain point of attrition where you go, um, we're big, we can't be criticized. We must be doing it right. Numbers are our apologetic to prove that we're right. Jesus knows that the drift of the church will be to lower the message of the cross for the sake of popularity numbers fitting into the culture. Paul says that's cowardly. We're all about the cross. And Jesus even says, Mary, praise you. I praise you for praising me for calling attention to the cross. Let's pray.